Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org. We've got another fantastic show in store for you this evening, and I'm also joined by my co host, Amba Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Yes, and. Uh, um, Yes, like I said, we have a uh, another fantastic show in the works today. And in our first segment, we're going to speak with Anna Maria Archila, immigrant rights leader and Working Families Party uh, candidate and Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor, who is running in a race that was turned upside down last week when sitting lieutenant governor Brian Benjamin resigned after being indicted on federal corruption charges. And the second half of today's show, we'll speak with Nardine Kiswani, the founder and chair of the NYC-based group Within Our Lifetime, United for Palestine, a community organization revitalizing the revolutionary spirit of the Palestinians in exile in pursuit of liberation. And before we dive into our first segment, I want to remind everyone that you can find the April print edition of The Independent across the city in our red and white news boxes and in more than 60 public libraries, plus independent bookstores, coffee shops, laundromats, etc. And you can also find our latest coverage online at independent.org. We're constantly updating our website with news stories. And one story we've been following closely uh, for months now uh, is the upsurge in union or, or organizing here in New York and across the country. And Amba, I hear you have some exciting news. That's right. Earlier this afternoon, uh, a, a handful of Starbucks stores in Richmond, Virginia, won, Richmond won their union elections. We know about last, at least two and five were voting. Um, and that now makes quite a few organized stores for Starbucks workers with over 200 more having filed for recognition, including four in New York City region just last week and our first one in Manhattan two weeks ago. So we've got hundreds um, unionized and and 200 more voting. So that's very exciting. Yeah, we just uh, uh, saw the latest update for the NLRB uh, election count in Virginia. They're now up to four uh, stores. Four, all four of the stores that have been counted so far have won with uh, one more store to go. Uh, so uh, really exciting right. news there. And uh, it looks like the union is coming to the south and uh, Richmond, the former capital of the Confederacy, no less. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And Amazon workers also are uh, voting in a second Staten Island warehouse, and that's going to start on the 25th through the 29th. And we should know by uh, May 2nd what, what the results are going to be there. And I hear they're also trying to soon get an election at a third uh, warehouse on Staten Island. So the Amazon labor union's really going for it. And you've covered that Amazon story like a blanket for months. <laughs> It's been a nice bed to lay on. No, I'm just joking. It's, it's been really awesome working with these guys. I am so excited to see what they're going to do. And uh, man, I just hope this spreads across the country. I'll be traveling to Staten Island tomorrow, actually, to talk with some workers at LDJ5, who are the ones that are going to be voting very soon on the 25th. So uh, look out on the Indies, Twitter, Instagram, and independent.org for, for some updates from us. Right on. Well, we now turn to our first guest, uh, Anna Maria Archila. Uh, Anna Maria is a longtime immigrant rights leader and former co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy and Make the Road New York. 
Center for Popular Democracy is one of the largest community organizing networks in the country with 54 affiliate organizations in 32 states in Puerto Rico. She is running for lieutenant governor in the June 28 Democratic primary with New York City public advocate Jamani Williams, who is running for governor. That lieutenant governor's race was blown wide open last week when now former lieutenant governor Brian Benjamin resigned following his indictment on federal corruption charges. Under New York election law, there's only a slim chance that Governor Kathy Hochul can have Benjamin removed from the ballot at this point and replaced with someone more to her liking. This unexpected turn of events has brought a surge of endorsements to Archila in the past week and greatly increased the chances of an unabashedly left and pro-working class candidate winning statewide office in New York for the first time in decades, if ever. Anna Maria Archila, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to join you. Thank you. For starters, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be a Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor of the state of New York? Um, Yeah. So uh, I'm originally from Colombia. I came to the United States when I was 17 years old, and I was very lucky to find myself inside the immigrant rights movement in my early 20s. I started working out of um, at an organization that was called at the time the Latin Latin American Integration Center, um, teaching English and helping um, day laborers recover unpaid wages in the North Shore of Staten Island. And it was in that community that I learned the lesson that has carried me all the way through the last 20 years, because um, in that community of day laborers, I met young people who were immigrants, uh, 15, 16, 17 year old, uh, people who had crossed the border by themselves and had come to this country to send money home and they were working 10 and 12 hour days. They were renting a bed, beds to, you know, taking turns sleeping in a bed, getting paid half of the minimum wage and just living in really difficult conditions. But even, you know, after 10 or 12 hour long days of work, they would come to these tiny storefronts and say, I am ready to learn English. I'm here to learn. And sort of they would come alive in a way that was incredibly moving and powerful. And what I learned in that moment is that when people find community, when people are connected to one another, they are able to sort of bring fully who they are, their histories, but also their dreams. And so their dreams were a very sort of powerful force um, that drove a lot of their efforts. And I think that's true for all of us. What we imagine of ourselves, what we imagine and envision for our loved ones is a really powerful force. And the things that often prevent us or make our lives hard are are the result of policies. So in the case of those um, young people, um, they were their lives were very much shaped by immigration policies that are so inhumane in the United States. Their lives were also shaped by housing policies that allow New York City to be regulated just by the market and make housing such a difficult thing to afford for most people. And the fact that they were getting paid half the minimum wage is really the result of, you know, poor law enforcement of the wage and hour laws. And so, so much of their lives was really the result of policy choices. And and I learned in that moment that our sort of our dreams coexist with the things that are challenging in our lives and that we could have a more just society if we tackle the things that make 
um, lives hard for people. And so I've spent the last 20 years building organizations like Make the Road, like the Center for Popular Democracy, that are organizations that allow working class communities, immigrant communities, black and brown communities to be powerful together, to envision solutions for the things that are challenging in their lives, and to actually be respected in our democracy, to be taken seriously. And that is the work that I have done. I believe that you know, in a state as rich as New York, one of the richest states in the country, we do not lack money, we do not lack resources, what we lack is leadership that is willing to be focused on improving the material conditions of people's lives. And um, we could elect leaders like Jumani, um, who has been you know, a fierce fighter for working families for a long time um, as governor. And we could have a lieutenant governor who's actually an ally to communities and to progressive legislators that are trying to achieve things like uh, protect tenants from evictions, uh, make sure that childcare is available to everyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of their immigration status, um, make healthcare accessible to everyone and so much more. And so I believe in New York that is possible. And that is why I decided to throw my hat in the ring to um, uh, sort of invite us all to believe and to sort of uh, build on the idea that uh, we could have a government that is focused on the priorities of working families and not the the whims and the desires of uh, real estate and billionaires. Right. And and you named um, a, a few of those goals just now that, that you and Jumani have uh, um, on your ticket together. But can you just outline again sort of what your your top platform goals are and what you would hope to succeed, uh, both you and Jumani? Yeah. Um, everywhere I go, I hear people talking about the impossible challenge that they face between jobs that don't pay enough and the rising cost of housing and healthcare and childcare and so and the cost of living. So working families are sandwiched between these two pressures. And the truth is that in New York, if we had a governor and a lieutenant governor who say, I'm not going to give $800 million to a billionaire to build a stadium, instead, I'm going to use $800 million to address childhood poverty in Buffalo, where 43% of the kids live in poverty, the, the fortunes and the lives of a generation would be changed, would be transformed. And so um, Jumani and I are fighting, uh, have an agenda that is focused on the things that are core priorities to working families, affordable housing, affordable childcare, access to good jobs for people who are in the care economy in particular, who are primarily women, women of color, working class women. Um, And a redefinition of safety from, you know, away from criminalization, away from incarceration, and more focus on investing in communities, because we know that the safest communities are the communities that are well-resourced, the communities where a mother doesn't have to work three jobs to pay rent, and a mother doesn't have to leave her children at home to take care of one another, because there is a childcare infrastructure that she can access, uh, a safe community community is a community where young people have after school programming and where young people have access to parks that are um, well resourced, that are lit, that are beautiful, um, where people have time to rest uh, and time to spend time with their families. And so that is the kind of New York that we know is possible and that we're fighting for. Right. And uh, 
you know, four years ago, uh, Jamani ran on the ticket with Cynthia Nixon as the lieutenant governor candidate in the spot you now hold. And in that race, uh, he greatly outperformed uh, uh, Nixon. Uh, Nixon lost by 32 points. Um, I mean, ran a very valiant race, but uh, lost to Cuomo's money sh- machine by more than 30 points. Uh, while uh, Jamani came within about seven points of defeating then Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. And this year, many people think you have a much better chance of winning than Jamani because of all the advantages of incumbency that Hochul now possesses, including a massive campaign war chest of more than $20 million. If you were to win the Democratic primary and become Kathy Hochul's running mate, how would you make that work, given that she probably wouldn't be very excited about that? And, And more importantly, how would you be a different kind of lieutenant governor, especially if you were serving under uh, Kathy Hochul? Uh, after all, this office has very few formal powers. Yeah. So for as long as I have been organizing, so for the last 20 years, the governor's office has been a block to progress. When we wanted to make sure that immigrant youth could access college, the governor's office was a block. When we wanted to raise the minimum wage, the governor's office was a block to progress. When we try to improve uh, protections for tenants, the governor's office is a block to progress. When we want to raise taxes on millionaires uh, and make sure that the people who have the most actually contribute their fair share, the governor's office is a block to progress. And for also for the duration of that time, the lieutenant governor has been used just as a surrogate of the governor just as a representative of the governor in ribbon-cutting ceremonies. And I think that's a misconception of the lieutenant governor's office because it is not an appointed office. It's an elected office. It's an office that's elected by the people in the primary and again in the general. So it's an office that should actually act as a surrogate of the people, a representative of the people inside the executive mansion, an office that's dedicated to elevating the agenda of working families, the agenda of People who will not be make will not be able to make donations in the thousands um, to a governor's race. Um, the agenda of people who are always pushed to the margins and and often forgotten by by um, by Albany. So I envision a lieutenant governor's office that is more independent, that is a voice for accountability, that is always reminding Albany that our job is to address to make people's lives better. Not the lives of millionaires and billionaires. Their lives are already fine. (laughs) It's the lives of regular people, working people, people who are struggling to make ends meet. Um, And I would do that regardless of who the governor is. And Jumani and I have had extensive conversations. This is actually his idea. When he ran in 2018, he talked about the lieutenant governor's office as a public advocate. Um, and that is, uh, that is, he, he blazed this trail um, that I am now walking on. And he demonstrated that it's actually very possible um, to, to win, uh, to, for progressives to win a lieutenant governor's race if we focus on it. And I'm so grateful for the leadership that he uh, exercised in 2018 and the, and the valiant campaign that he's running right now, because you're right, the governor has $20 million in her war chest. And yet when you hear people talk to Jumani, uh, they feel very moved by his message because they know that um, he's someone who has always at every step of his political career uh, being focused on the needs and priorities of working families and black and brown communities and working class communities. But um, I would, uh, you know, I hope to, uh, especially in a moment like this one where the contrast is so clear and where 
where the budget demonstrated what the governor is willing to fight for. She went to the mat to roll back bail reform and to give $800 million to, to a stadium um, on, you know, for a team owned by a billionaire who lives in Florida, not necessarily the priorities of working families. Um, it is especially important in this moment as we, as government is tasked with helping people stabilize out of the pandemic, uh, you know, two years of isolation and a lot of, a lot of loss and a lot of economic instability. It is more important than ever to be like extremely focused on the needs of regular people to address the crisis and that people are facing in their lives starting with the affordability crisis. So that is my vision for the role. Um, I, of course, um, would partner with the person that wins the primary for governor, because remember, there is, a, there is a primary for lieutenant governor and a primary for governor. And I would partner with whoever wins the primary for governor to make sure that we do not have a Republican, <laughs> Lee Zeldin, right. leading New York State, who, you know, Lee Zeldin is a very dangerous Republican, a Trumpist Republican. Um, and more importantly, to make sure that people have an ally inside the executive mansion, someone who will always be focused on elevating the voices, the dreams, the struggles, the aspirations of New Yorkers who are um, such a wonderful bunch, but who often get shortchanged um, in Albany. Right. And I have a, a quick follow up here, which is, uh, for people who would ask, like, you've never held public office before. This would be your first public office. How do you address the experience issue? Yeah, so I have, I have spent the last 20 years doing politics from the ground up doing politics that are the hard way, the, the, you know, I, I spent the first 13 years of my life building power rooted in working class immigrant communities, the communities that often cannot vote often are sort of assumed to just be willing to accept exploitation. And, um, and I have done it because I believe that in order to build a just society, we need to, the sort of the history of these countries, the history of people who are pushed to the margins, always pushing to be included in the promise. That is, that is how we have made advances in this, in this country for uh, hundreds of years. And, um, and so I have been very engaged in, in the efforts to, to pass, uh, to win policies that improve people's lives and building organizations like Make the Road and others that allow communities, working class communities to be taken seriously and be engaged. The kinds of organizations that I have built are organizations that have internal democracy. So I'm very familiar with how to practice accountability to communities um, that are organized and, and how to lead in a way that is very rooted in those values. Now, the organizations that I have built also were organizations that I built from very small to very large. When I started um, leading uh, Make the Road, it was an organization that was quite small. And when I left, it was a $13 million organization with 115 staff. When I started CPD or when I joined the team at CPD, the Center for Popular Democracy, it was again at a, in its infancy. And I just stepped down uh, from that role, uh, leaving it a $35 million organization. So I have 
20 years of executive experience. Um, and most importantly, I have 20 years of uh, experience fighting to make sure that working class communities are respected in our democracy and that our lives are improved by those who we elect. So that's the experience that I would bring to the role of lieutenant governor. And finally, I feel like, you know, the lieutenant governor's role has sort of two defined powers. One is uh, presiding over the Senate, and that is a role that should not be just done in a ceremonial way. I think that, you know, someone who presides over the Senate could, for example, say, last night, 92,000 people slept in shelters and on the street. What are we doing about that? And also, the lieutenant governor can has the responsibility to step into the governor's role if the governor is incapacitated or resigns. And again, an active lieutenant governor who is engaging and actually driving an agenda that improves people's lives is a better equipped to step into the role of governor if that were necessary. So that's how I, um, I see the value of my experience and especially the value of my demonstrated great. commitment to uplifting people. That's great. Right. And, and after Benjamin's indictment last week, several progressive state legislators, as well as New York City Comptroller Brett, Brad Lander endorsed you. This is Assemblymember Ron Kim from Queens speaking about the quote-unquote formula for remaining in power in state government. We'll go to that clip now. Places like Albany, the formula is very clear. Corporate politics, buy people off, and win elections. That's what they do. We need leadership that prioritizes people and communities first. Center solutions around our most vulnerable people first. Not the corporations who are extracting billions of dollars every single year while we compete for chump change. We need a lieutenant governor that can say enough is enough. It doesn't matter who the governor is. We need a lieutenant governor who can say, we're not going to shill for corporate interests. We're not going to shill for billionaires. We're going to fight for every dollar that our schools deserve. We're going to fight to fund every immigrant needs in the state of New York. Your reaction to that, Ana Maria? And then also, what would you do as lieutenant governor to try and change that pervasive pay-to-play culture in Albany? And, uh, and you know, also New York State campaign finance uh, allows 65000 in max donations for governor. So how are you and Jumani fundraising for your campaigns? So first of all, I agree 100% with uh, Ron Kim, and I am so proud to have his support and the support of um, Assembly members, uh, Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas, Yulene New, um, and others um, who have uh, come out to support our campaign, uh, because uh, he's right for, as you know, the corporate interests have control over the agenda in Albany, and we saw it in the budget. The way that the sort of big industries get to decide uh, the policy priorities is really a disservice to New Yorkers. And the campaign finance uh, rules facilitate that. Um, The fact that, you know, a governor can say, I'm not going to raise taxes on Wall Street and millionaires, and then that 
governor <laughs> gets to raise millions of dollars in just a, a few weeks, it's a demonstration of how, um, you know, how uh, corrosive the role of money is in, in our politics. Uh, Jumani and I have pledged not to take money from real estate and not to take money from corporate PACs, precisely so that we are, our, our priorities and our, and our agenda is not obscured by the interest and the pressures of real estate and, and corporate PACs. Um, I, yesterday was tax day. And um, there is an organization called Patriotic Millionaires that is an organization of millionaires who believe that millionaires should pay their fair share. And they published a report that said in New York State, there are 125 billionaires who just in the last two years since the pandemic started made in, in gains $228 billion dollars. $228 billion in wealth accumulated during the pandemic, simply because their wealth is sitting in stocks and those stocks are gaining value and they uh, were able to become $228 billion richer. You know what? That is more than the budget of the entire state of New York. The budget that just passed was $220 billion. And New York is not taxing any of the wealth that these 125 individuals who reside in the state of New York made over the last two years. That is terrible. We should be taxing billionaires on the wealth that they have, um, even if it's an unrealized gain. Because if that wealth is real enough for banks to lend credit to them based on their portfolio, then that wealth should be real enough for us to tax it. And um, I think that a new, entirely new uh, life would be possible for New Yorkers if we dare to tax the richest few, like these 125 residents of the state of New York who are billionaires and make more than $200 billion over the last two years, and if we were willing to tax corporations at a fair share. Right. So Jumani and I want to lift that up, the possibility of a more just New York if we actually make the richest few pay their fair share. Sounds good. And, and uh, we'll have to go here in a couple of minutes, but in your 20 plus years as an organizer, Anna Maria, the moment you're most famous for occurred in the fall of 2018 when you confronted Arizona Senator Jeff Flake in Washington, D.C., uh, in, in the Senate office uh, building. Uh, during the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation hearings, which you were a part of the protests against that. Uh, we're going to go to a clip of that. Do you have an answer, Senator? Higher 
Anna Maria Archila, your reflections of four years later on, on that moment and what it says about how you might uh, perform if you were to be someone holding public office? Well, you know, <laughs> I have, I had been an organizer for many years before that moment. And that fight, the fight to uh, stop the nomination of Red Kavanaugh required of me something I had never given, which was to um, speak my own truth and um, and I did it because I watched other people around me be so courageous, telling their stories um, of experiencing sexual violence and sexual assault. And it was by witnessing all the courage around me that I then was able to um, release this part of my experience that I had never told. And what I learned in that moment are two things. One is that courage is really contagious that when you see people be courageous around you, you are invited to find that seed of courage in yourself. And courage is built in community. So, you know, when we think about the experience in New York and the women who told their stories of um, the abuses of power under under Cuomo, uh, at the hands of Cuomo, um, their courage the was actually the thing that unlocked <laughs> all the sort of the grip of power that that Cuomo had over over Albany and New York. And and I think in these moments, when I think about the last 20 years and the compounding crisis, the crisis of COVID, the crisis of climate um, change, the crisis of inequality, the attacks on our democracy, what defines these, these crises for me is actually the courage of people who stand up for one another, who take risks, um, who we, take we have, care uh, 30 of one seconds. another, and the courage of people who fight for one another. So I think the task for elected officials right now is actually to match the courage of people. And I would be so honored to be able to bring that experience in Albany and to try to do my very best to honor the courage of people who are demanding a more just society. Okay, Anna Maria Archila, Democratic candidate for Lieutenant Governor of New York, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you. Okay. We'll be back after this short music break, and we'll be talking about Palestinian liberation.
That was an abridged version of Us and Them by Pink Floyd. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. I'm Ambigar Garian, joined by my co-host, John Tarleton. Now, turning to our second segment and final segment of the day, Nardine Kiswana, Kiswani, sorry, Nardine Kiswani is the founder and chair of the NYC-based group Within Our Lifetime, United for Palestine, a community organization revitalizing the revolutionary spirit of the Palestinians in exile in pursuit of liberation. Through Within Our Lifetime, commonly known as WAL, Nardine has spoken and organized around the Palestinian cause nationwide and worldwide, building solidarity with oppressed peoples fighting for liber- liberation. Now, Nardine is in her third year at CUNY School of Law, where she's the president of Students for Justice in Palestine. Nardine is here to update us on what's been going on recently in Gaza with amped up attacks on the Holy Al-Aqsa Mosque, as well as what's happening in NYC with the Palestinian community here. Nardine, welcome to the show. We are excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me and for covering this important topic, as we know, Um, It's often hidden in mainstream media, so it's always important to get the word out as much as possible. Absolutely. We're here for it, and we're not mainstream, but as much as we can do, we're here for it. So um, jumping right in, over the weekend, almost 500 Palestinians were arrested in Israeli soldier attacks on Al-Aqsa Mosque and other areas in the Gaza Strip, and that mosque is the third holiest site in Islam. Um, 170 Palestinians were injured, several of whom were journalists that were pinpointed, say, you know, say Palestinians. And we're going to listen to some clips here. In the clips, you can hear the sound of the police assaulting a a woman at the mosque, um, as well as Palestinians talking about what had happened and the significance of the mosque. So we'll go here to the Alaska mosque clips. We were forced out of the Al-Aqsa Mosque after the dawn prayer. Then Jewish settlers started to enter. After we saw two groups of them, we started to chant, and the Israeli forces tried to detain me. They are invading in big numbers. During this holiday, it is known every year that they, the Jewish visitors, invade the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I am calling on everyone who can reach Al-Aqsa gates to come and support us. The Al-Aqsa Mosque and Damascus Gate are maybe the only remaining public spaces for Palestinians in the entirety of Jerusalem, where Palestinian existence is criminalized, where Palestinian taking up space is criminalized. Al-Aqsa Mosque is, yes, the third holiest site in Islam, but it's not only that. It is a social site. It's a political site. It's a site where I, as a teenager, used to go and study for my tests. And if we are robbed from that, then in our native city, we do not have any public spaces left. So in addition to uh, the attack on the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the recent few days, dozens of Palestinians have been killed. One was a mother of six who was shot down in the street for really no reason. Another was a young man, Mohammed Asaf, who was the legal advisor to Palestinians of uh, Palestinian Authorities Committee against the wall. Um, but, you know, we hear these fragmented, slanted pieces of news that refer to this as an even-sided conflict. A recent NBC headline I found reads, Palestinians clash with Israeli police at Jerusalem holy site. So tell us um, what you've heard from your on-the-ground connections and uh, how ongoing this attack is, especially on Al-Aqsa. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the clips said it early on in the beginning is that this happens every Ramadan. You know, in Ramadan, yeah. we're fasting from sunrise to sunset. And the last time I was able to go to Palestine before I was permanently banned by Israel due to my activism, I remember going to Al-Aqsa Mosque every single day um, in Ramadan. And on so many days, you would just have soldiers, Israeli soldiers storming the mosque for absolutely no reason, not that they'd have you know, a justified reason to be there to begin with since they are uh, the, the colonizing entity. But they would just storm in with their stun grenades, with their smoke bombs, um, harassing people, shooting at, at women, at children, at all different types of, of people all of the time. So this is something that I experienced firsthand. And this was a, a few years ago. Back then, nobody was covering it. No one was, you know, even sharing videos that are coming out of the ground. So um, now, you know, these videos are starting to be shared. People are sharing them on social media, but this is definitely nothing new. Um, hundreds of Palestinians continue to be attacked, shot at, beaten, and prevented from worshiping by Zionist occupation forces. And every year during Ramadan, these attacks escalate. Um, and not just against, you know, Palestinian Muslims. They do this to all Palestinians, um, Palestinian Christians who are also trying to celebrate Easter um, I know it comes on different dates, um, depending on the denomination, but, you know, they're also prevented from uh, being able to worship and access their holy sites to the fullest extent. So this is really a whole scale attack on all um, uh, Palestinians who are risking their lives just to be able to worship, just to be able um, to study and live freely. And, um, and, you know, this is this is uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say just on, on the religion aspect, it is Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak, by the way, and just talk about what Ramadan means for listeners who might not know and the irony of the fact that, you know, it's for the poor to eat like the rich and the rich to experience starvation. Um, but how could people struggling not only in Palestine, but in the Arab world in general, let's be honest, how can a Yemeni be expected to celebrate Ramadan right now when there's constant bombing? Just your comments on that and what Ramadan means. Exactly. You know, it's it's difficult because we're fasting from sunrise to sunset from all food, from water. Um, and it's really like, you know, supposed to be a peaceful time. But of course, Zionists take advantage of this. They take advantage of thinking that Palestinians are in a weakened state because we're not able to eat by attacking us. But we know that, you know, spiritually, we're much stronger during this time. So despite Zionist attacks, Palestinians continue to defend ourselves with everything we have. From everywhere we are, um, you know, despite the fact that we have to fast and not even be able to drink or eat anything throughout the day. And this is also a time where we're supposed to be dedicated um, to worshiping. But, you know, of course, they want to make that as hard as possible. Another reason why this is so significant is because Ramadan is one of the only times that Palestinians in the West Bank can even dream of getting a permit to go into Al-Aqsa Mosque, right? Because they're not allowed to travel freely or even pray in the holiest site mm -hmm. for Muslims in their country. But during Ramadan, you know, they're supposed to be able to get permits. But of course, um, you know, they'll issue some permits, they'll deny some people. And then for those that even get to make it to Al-Aqsa, um, they're not going to make it a pleasant experience for them. They don't want them um, to be, you know, wanting to come back. They want Palestinians to live um, in fear, but thanks to the protectors of Al-Aqsa Mosque, the brave youth that we've seen putting their bodies on the line to protect our people, despite all this happening, last Friday, 60,000 Palestinians still showed up to pray at Al-Aqsa Mosque. So wow. they can keep trying to attack and kill us, but this only makes us stronger. Nardine, 
Can you tell us about uh, yourself and your family's story of migration? And you said you've been banned from Palestine. Can you elaborate on that as well? Yeah, I was born um, in Jordan to Palestinian refugees. There's a big Palestinian refugee population in Jordan and in neighboring Arab countries since so many Palestinians live in exile ever since the 1948 Nakba when 750,000 Palestinians were expelled forcibly from their homes and 531 villages were depopulated. So a lot of our stories start out that way. Mine started in Jordan. I, you know, moved to the U.S. when I was one. So um, I didn't really, you know, get a chance to, to see Palestine much, but I've been there three times. Once when I was a baby and um, two when I was two more times when I was older. Uh, but at that time, I started getting involved in activism um, and particularly with students for justice in Palestine at the College of Staten Island, my alma mater. And the last time I tried to go to Palestine in 2015, um, the Israeli authorities at the border actually pulled out a file that um, had newspaper articles about um, some so event for Palestine that we had um, at, at CSI. And it said my name and it said that I was president, all of these things. So they interrogated me for 16 hours. They left me at the border until two o'clock in the morning. They wouldn't give me my passport back. I didn't have, um, you know, even a cell phone connection. So I couldn't contact anyone. Um, and, you know, they just accused me of being anti-Semitic because I, w- I, I was part of a club for Palestine um, on my campus. They, you know, said they started questioning me about the Gaza war that happened in 2014 and what my opinion on that was when I told them it's sad when any innocent life dies, they called me a liar um, and eventually gave me a, they asked to go through my phone. They asked for my password. And when I refused to give them that, they gave me a paper that um, said immigration uh, to Israel denied, even though I'm a U.S. citizen, it's, it's not immigration. I was going in on the U.S. visa waiver program, uh, which should be accessible to all U.S. citizens. But um, on the paper, the reason that they said it was denied was hostile behavior towards Israel. But of course, this is an all too common experience of many Palestinians who are punished for speaking out in defense of our people and defense of our homeland. Um, They want people to be afraid to do that. And they'll take away one of the most treasured experiences of being able to, you know, visit our country, see my family there. I'm not able to go to the village where all four of my grandparents were born um, or see any of my dad's family who all live there right now. Mm hmm. Not able to pray, not able to go home, as if that should be an argument anyway. Um, so I, I actually was speaking uh, with some folks the other day who who did not remember last May's attack um, or, you know, 14 day bombing um, of of Gaza uh, from the Israeli side, even though I, I, I remember having conversations with those people around the time that it happened and they're, you know, in general in solidarity with the Palestinian cause. So, you know, it makes me think about what this persistent aggression and this persistent refugee status does to the collective consciousness of those that should even be, quote unquote, you know, in solidarity and, and how we value violence and, you know, who deserves violence and of course, this is coming up now, again, with the extremely terrifying, extremely unfortunate war that's happening in Ukraine being waged on Ukraine. But we, the way we value life is um, very clear. Yeah, black and brown people, uh, the, the suffering of black and brown people is something that so many are desensitized to. And of course, 
um, you know, those comments sting. We're all familiar with them because we're quote unquote uncivilized. We don't deserve human rights. I mean, I think this what happened in Ukraine, um, as unfortunate as it is, exposed a lot of the hypocrisy around um, refugees, particularly black refugees who are trying to come out of, um, you know, Ukraine that were being denied. And now with everything going on in Palestine, um, everyone's mind first and foremost goes to that double standard. The fact that, you know, not only were people standing with Ukrainian refugees, but going as far as funding, um, actually sending funding to and sending weapons to Ukraine, um, something that we can't even, you know, dream of talking about for Palestine because um, it's criminalized in the U.S. to send material support to Palestinians. Um, meanwhile, you can you can fundraise and send weapons to Ukraine, um, let alone, you know, standing with 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 Palestinian uh, refugees or Palestinians on the ground who are suffering from Israeli settler colonialism. Um, so, you know, I think that um, it's important to to bring up this hypocrisy and to continue to challenge the desensitization um, and the the racism, frankly, that people have towards Palestinians and towards other black and brown people who are also suffering, who've been suffering for decades, who've been fighting against settler colonialism, who've been fighting against, you know, these senseless wars that are waged on our lands against our people um, to no avail. But, you know, I think um, people are starting to wake up to this hypocrisy. I was just on a call with um, American Airlines to change a flight or something um, for my mom. And, you know, she was she's going to Jordan. So, even the the call uh, the call person was talking to me about how he wants to go to Jordan. He brought up Palestine and and the hypocrisy with Ukraine. And this is it, it was just funny because it's on a call to to change a flight. But you know it's it's really reaching everywhere. And I think um, it, it's getting to a mainstream level, um, acknowledging this hypocrisy at least. Even if the media doesn't cover it, um, we're seeing it everywhere on social media. This is what people are talking about. So um, you know you right. pretty much summed it up as well. Right. Uh, yeah. No, I remember those television commentators seemed almost shocked that uh, uh, white people would attack other uh, white people as if uh, <laughs> that that was unimaginable. Uh, but uh, when Israeli speaking of white people attacking, when is, uh, Israeli forces bombed Gaza for two weeks last May, there were worldwide protests in solidarity with the Palestinian people. And one protest in Bay Ridge. Uh, in the south of uh, Brooklyn, where there's a large Palestinian community, there was a turnout of an estimated 50,000 people. What has the momentum from that looked like? And what keeps the Palestinian community uh, uplifted and, and uh, you know, finding, a, I guess, a, a positive uh, 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 ray uh, of hope amid all, all the oppression and, and violence that it's subjected to? Yeah, protests have been so important for the Palestinian cause because they're one of the few places that we can really come together to collectively rage. So many Palestinians here in New York have family back home um, that are, you know, living directly under the bombs or that are, um, you know, being prevented from traveling freely. So everyone here has has someone back home that's hurting that they're fighting for. Everyone here has a grandparent or a story that traces back to the Nakba. Um, and, you know, it's not just Palestinians, of course, who come to these protests, but the larger, you know, adjacent community, so many Muslims and Arabs and non-Muslims and non-Arabs, you know, people, uh, more and more people of all oppressed backgrounds in particular are standing in solidarity with the Palestinian cause, um, especially relating it to, to causes that 
they're also facing. So, you know, I believe that the the uprising for Black Lives Matter um, directly contributed to the Palestinian uprising as well. Um, and we find strength in supporting one another's struggles. And, you know, since then, we've continued uh, to organize. So many people are joining organizations. Uh, we're having an up- upcoming rally this Wednesday at five o'clock in front of the Zionist mission, um, you know, bringing this up again. And, Throughout that summer, you know, we protested almost every single day in every single borough of New York City. Yes, we even went to Staten Island. Uh, but, you know, there's this thirst of uh, for people to cry out against oppression because they've been so familiar and so silenced about the oppression for so long. But, you know, we've really reached a breakthrough moment where growing up, people would be afraid to talk about Palestine or even sometimes identify as Palestinian. And now not only are we proud to identify with being Palestinian, but we're also proud um, to unbashedly support the Palestinian struggle and those who keep it alive, namely the, the Palestinian resistance. And, you know, we're becoming more and more unwavering in our support for Palestinian liberation, consistent to our principles. And, and you know, people are becoming less afraid to talk about Palestine. Um, and I think, you know, that was not only the effects of of these large protests that happen in New York, around the mm-hmm. country and around the world, but also the persistent um, nature of the Palestinian people back home who have been resisting throughout these past 74 years and longer. Right. And one of the, the most high profile uh, forms of, of Palestinian uh, or pro-Palestinian uh, protest uh, around the world in the last 17 years has been the BDS movement, which was, I believe, initiated in 2005. What's your assessment of how that is going? Because uh, I, I wonder if it's working. I mean, very few major institutions have uh, uh, agreed to abide by a BDS. Uh, it, it hasn't gained the, the kind of traction uh, that the the boycott and sanction movement against South Africa gained in the 1970s and 80s with what do you think is the difference here? And it, it, are there other uh, uh, other methods that should be uh, tried? Yeah, well, like, you know, Amber mentioned at, at the beginning of the of the call, um, I'm a 3L at CUNY Law, unfortunately. And fortunately, um, last semester, we actually passed our BDS resolution. Um, and we're seeing more examples of, of colleges across the country that are either having um, resolutions passed or introduced. And while, you know, uh, not all universities will pass um, the resolution or sometimes like a university like ours, we passed it as student government. But, um, you know, CUNY Central and the Board of Trustees are not going to abide by what the students want. They're just right. going to be interested in lining their pockets. It's still important to bring up these conversations because, it, it really allows us to organize people on Palestine. It's a way to directly connect it to people in the U.S. who might say, you know, what does the struggle have to do with me? Well, if you're aware that your tuition money is going to fund companies that are, um, you know, that are maintaining the occupation of the Palestinian people, then it absolutely has everything to do with you. And I think that's the main thing that we try to do through these BDS campaigns is that it's a tool in a toolbox um, that we use to help, you know, spread awareness, um, to educate people, to agitate people, um, and to organize for the Palestinian cause. So, you know, it's unfortunate that people aren't taking it up as, as much as they should. And boycott has existed even before BDS. You know, so many um, other Arab neighboring countries to this day have consistently boycotted Israeli goods, have boycotted working with Israeli institutions in any way. And I think 
um, you know, we're just trying to bring that here to the U.S. Uh, at this point. And I think it's it's really important um, to not only make it about the boycott of goods and, and taking like finances out of Israel's pockets, because at the end of the day, the U.S. still gives $10 million of our tax uh, of our tax dollars every single day in military aid alone um, to Israel. But, you know, we have to look at this as what culture are we building on our campuses, in our institutions, in our places of work? And um, it's important to call out when when we work, when these institutions work with people who support the Palestinian genocide, um, people or, or other institutions um, who are complicit in, in killing Palestinians. Um, and this especially affects universities for example, who have partnerships with um, other universities like Tel Aviv University that is um, holding Palestinian bodies hostage, um, not, you know, not giving them back to their families after they've been killed by Israeli soldiers. Um, and, and this is something that, you know, you can look up. It sounds it sounds crazy, but it's absolutely happening. You know, how can we watch that happen and then partner with these universities or do like exchange programs with them? Um, so I think it's beyond just the finances. It's about shifting that culture um, and using BDS as a tool, as a tactic um, to educate people on the Palestinian struggle and what it right. has to do with them. And, 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 and you know, that this is something that happens, unfortunately, is just a defining factor of the economic system we live under and the political system we live under, which is that, um, you know, corporate interests hold wealth that often continues violence um, or state, state, state sanctioned violence. So kind of with that, you know, frame of mind, um, talk about how Gaza and, and Palestine, you know, really is a, a, a microcosm for struggles around the world um, and, uh, and how, you know, the revolutionary spirit is so strong there, what we can learn from Palestinian revolutionaries. Um, and, and if you want, in a moment, you can, you can touch on Nakba Day coming up. I know you said uh, a little bit about it, but uh, tell, tell everyone what it is. And uh, we have about a minute to wrap up here. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, Palestine and Gaza continues to be the litmus test. Seeing other people fight for liberation struggles is empowering for all oppressed people around the world who are also fighting for the liberation struggles. And I can't, I'm going to want to look for the quote now since we have so little time, but Ghassan Kenafani said, you know, anywhere that you strike imperialism, you serve world revolution. Um, and, and people look to Palestine for that inspiration to continue to fight for their struggles, just as Palestinians look to the, to the struggles of black liberation, of indigenous liberation, and so many other struggles as inspiration for ours. Um, and, you know, I, I'll plug in May 15 now. We have two, we have two protests. We have one on Wednesday, April 20th. 5 p.m. at the Zionist Mission. That's not Nekba Day. That's the emergency protest in response to everything going on right now. Uh, but for Nekba Day, we'll be in Bay Ridge. Um, time coming soon, but we'll be there. We'll be there all day. Hopefully, we can replicate um, or even exceed the number of people um, that we got last year. But we know that news about Palestine is continuously being suppressed. Um, so hopefully that doesn't affect it. But, you know, we find we find strength in each other regardless whether or not um, the world supports us. As long as Palestinians in Palestine continue to wage the struggle, continue to fight um, for our freedom and for our return. You know, we will support them as Palestinians in exile with whatever we have. 
from whatever from wherever we are and if that's protesting in new york if that's bds resolutions if that's you know um organizing fundraisers um to send money to palestine we're gonna do that Right. And that is Nardine Kiswani with Within Our Lifetime Palestine. Thank you so much for joining us here on WBAI Independent News Hour. Um, that wraps it up for our show today, folks. We are going to leave you with Childhood by Hamza al-Din, the South, South Egyptian. <laughs> Sing out.